Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big question. How have different models of the body shaped medical practice and our sense of identity throughout history? My guest is Dr. Paul Craddock, author and senior research associate for the Science Museum Group. We discuss the often gruesome history of transplant surgery, and I learn about the legal organ market in Iran. So come, have a seat with us and learn to listen with me. Kind of as we get started, uh, one want to want to thank you, and uh, I want to ask you a little bit uh, about your journey into uh, this kind of history of medicine and why this book in particular. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's it's really nice to be here, and I like your chasing Leviathan um, backdrop there. It's very nice. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> not at all. Um, well, how I got into transplant surgery, I suppose, is the question, isn't it? Because I'm not, I've never been a patient. Um, mm. I've given blood, but I've never been a, a transplant recipient of, uh, and I never donated a kidney or anything like that. Uh, but I'm also not a surgeon. And it really started because I was, I became interested in, in medicine and medical history in general. And I got accepted onto a PhD program. And I was, you know, you don't necessarily know what you're going to research. And I was looking for some inspiration. And in fact, your listeners and you now can um, search this. If you search a, uh, for a, a woman called Jennifer Sutton, just Google Jennifer Sutton and the word heart, and you'll come across... Why do I know that because name? Because you've, you've okay, read my book. Um, <laughs> that's probably why you know okay, that name. Now, now I feel stupid. <laughs> yeah. Here, for those of you who are uh, able to see on YouTube, um, here's the cover. It's Spare Parts, uh, the story of medicine through the history of transplant surgery. And it's uh, a really fun read, as well as very informative. So uh, that's also why I know the name Jennifer Sutton, and now I feel stupid. But that's no, good. That's, uh, um. I'm surprised you do, actually, because it was in the acknowledgments. But anyway, Jennifer Sutton at heart. Uh, basically, I came across this picture when I was searching for uh, some inspiration of what to do a PhD on. And um, I came across it, and, and it's it's basically a picture of, oh, it's a photograph of a student and she's staring at her own heart mm. and it's such wow. an unlikely thing to to come across it was part of an exhibition uh, in fact the first exhibition of the welcome collection which is a museum medical history uh, museum not just history medical museum as well in london and um her story is that she she had a condition called cardiomyopathy Basically, that means the walls of her heart were thicker than they were supposed to be. And, you know, the heart struggled to pump the blood around her body. And the only cure mm. for that is a transplant. So she had that. And uh, the welcome asked um, if they could have her heart as an exhibit in this temporary exhibition. And she said yes. And there was a photographer there. And you can see that picture by searching Jennifer Sutton and Hart. And you can see that's the thing that sent shivers down my spine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I used to work at the NHS, at the National Health Service. I was a PA, the only male PA um, in, the, in the whole of the, um, the uh, uh, part of the NHS I worked. Um, and so I, I sort of shared this kind of an appreciation for the health service uh, that this mm. image sort of depicted. But more than that, I saw a, a, you can't look at that actually without seeing an incredible intimacy, an intimacy between a woman and her own heart. But also, if you think about it, the intimacy between that woman and the heart of the woman or man, or, you know, the donor, um, whose heart is mm -hmm. beating away inside of her, yet that person has died. So there's a, a, it's a very intimate image, and the photographer did a, an amazing job capturing that. Um, and that sort of led to questions about, well, very deep questions where everybody asks themselves, you know, yes. uh, what does it mean to have a body? Especially if 
your body, a, a particularly vital part of your body can be outside of you and you're looking at it and still alive. And if you can accept parts from other people. So what does it mean to have a body? What does it mean to have an identity in that case? What does it mean even to be human or even alive? You know, always very, very basic questions. And it struck me um, that transplant surgery always, always has always been seen as a, a kind of a, a medical history sort of race to be the first to transplant such and such an organ. Um, mm. You know, it's always seen, it's always been seen as, as a kind of a, an achievement, but actually it goes to the heart of what it means to be a human and what it means to be alive. And I, and that's what I thought, well, I'll have to dedicate some time to this. Uh, so that became yeah. my PhD topic. And I wrote about 18th century transplant surgery in the PhD. Um, and I discovered actually it goes well, well, well back. It's because much further back. It goes to ancient India. I'm being very animated. I don't know. I don't know what it is. You're bringing out. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know what you're bringing out in me. Uh, no, I think no. It was that was fascinating to me. It was like I think it was 1600 years is the first mention of it. No, no, well, and it seems like the the and the practice predated it, right? Um, I was talking about the book you referenced at the beginning, but I could be wrong. Well, the book I referenced at the beginning, right at the beginning in the introduction, the first mm -hmm. mention of a transplant operation is yes. in, well, sometime between the 2nd and 6th century BC. So that's ancient right. India. Yes, and very ancient. Very, <laughs> you could say very ancient. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and the remarkable thing about that, if that's not remarkable enough for you, um, is that the it was in the Sushruta Samhita, and that's an ancient Ayurvedic surgical text. And the procedures that are described in there, which in includes a caesarean section or what became known as a caesarean section and cataract operations as well, um, mm. they were considered traditional even then, even back, right. where, you know, millennia ago. Mm -hmm. um, so it really, it does have an, a very ancient heritage, but it's, it also has a heritage that is, it's not... It's not part of, well, past past the traditional Indian um, sort of framing. It's not. It, it 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 sort of loses its place as part of an official legitimate um, medical system. Because when we next see evidence of mm. skin grafts um, emerging, right. it's as you mentioned. It's it's actually um, in the fifteen fifties. Right in uh, Italy, in I Italy. Believe. That's right. Yeah, yes. If I'm remembering, absolutely. Yeah. It's in the, I did. I read the whole uh, book. I'm not just. <laughs> I didn't just like skim it. I was. It was. A I really think you're great protesting read. too I, much I there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just want like I'm definitely like uh, you know I, I'm tracking with all this, and I, for me it seems there were very clearly a couple of uh, threads that you kind of pulled throughout mm. the book. Right. One of them you've kind of touched on um, identity. Right. This idea that we are. Uh, you know, from any scientific perspective, at least embodied, you know, like laying aside ideas of disembodied consciousness, which we've never measured. Um, and so this, that is a, a something you talk about quite a mm. bit, even starting with the idea of noses and how important that was to someone's identity. Um, and then uh, the ethics of it, which I, I wasn't until I got to uh, his name, um, Willem Kolf. Yes. All, and he was such a wonderful person. Mm. And I'm reading this and like everything he did, he was so kind and he was, he seemed so genuinely interested in his patients. And all of a sudden I stopped and I was like, the rest of these people have been jerks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, 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 like the, you know what I'm saying? Like I look back and I was like, oh, these have actually all been most, not all of them, but most of them have been pretty terrible people. And the idea of the ethics know. of it <laughs> and the ego. Yes, I, I, I'm formulating thoughts about this because I can't believe that these people were. I, the word "jerk" doesn't come easily to an to, no, a, to, no. a, to an English person. <laughs> that, um, that's a New Englander speaking. That's uh, that's a little probably. I have transgressed a boundary no, there. What they, I would there were definitely unethical. What I would say naturally, you wouldn't be able to broadcast. Yeah. I don't think. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. Were they? 
because you know there is a certain concern with when when people are um sorry i'll start that thought again uh, when doctors when scientists or proto scientists mm. were um communicating about their work there's a certain set of um formalities that you're expected to sort of um adhere to or uphold Mm-hmm. And a certain attitude that you're expected to, I suppose, have um, publicly. And I don't know, I sometimes think maybe these people were sometimes really lovely. Um, I don't know. I like to give people the benefit of a doubt. <laughs> that sounds a bit wet, doesn't it? But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to judge uh, these people um, yeah. as, in, as individuals. I, 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 I... But they certainly were not yes, nice to animals. I, they were awful to animals. That's, that comes out. And I appreciated that you said that because it, this has always come at a cost, right? Um, and there, there, uh, there are costs to the animals. And there are also, um, I believe it was the, the transplant uh, with, um, when they first started transfusing blood. Mm. And they were trying to help the madman. And the scientists competing over this man's life as if he's an object one be, because he wants his transfusion to succeed not that he's that worried about the madman and the other because they don't want the other guy to succeed because they think this practice is dangerous and they want to preserve their place in the medical society and he ends up dying in the middle of this it's like but he doesn't, he doesn't uh, die from the transfusion uh, though Right, no, no, no. He doesn't die from the transfusion. He dies because the other guy comes and pays his wife to poison him. Well, I think I don't think she needed much encouragement. Possibly. I and mean, if you were married, if you yeah. <laughs> if you were married to a Frenchman who set fire to everything, um, and just sort of wandered around Paris naked, I think you'd probably. <laughs> I don't know. I have some sympathy for her. Um, <laughs> That's not the response I was expecting. What, what resp- I sorry, known, what response though. did you expect? I don't know. It's that, that's fair. That's fair. Also, the fact that you did point out he was a Frenchman does feel very English. The um, <laughs> yes, he's like, uh, you know, it's like he's setting fire to everything. He's and, French, uh, and he's French. Yes, well, well, you know, <laughs> it's like it's it's. Yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, I, my, my I, again, wife I'm not I, judging my either. My wife and I no. did the 23andMe, um, you know, the, the DNA testing thing, and. It turns out she's from all over the place. She's actually from Vancouver. Mm. Um, but I am the least diverse person you could hope to meet. I am something like 99.7% British. And the point, but the 0.3% is French. So. Oh, well, there were all those invasions back and forth. I that mean, must that be makes it. sense. Sorry, I, so, I'm, get, I'm getting off yeah. topic there. No, no, that's fine. Um, so, uh, I understand. Like, I mean, it was clear that she did not take much encouragement. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also it's clear that it seems obvious that the other party did visit her before all that took place. It would seem and, to be the case, um, yes. And there was a history of that party um, railing against the idea of transfusion because transfusion back then was, mm. um, it was quite controversial in france <laughs> a catholic country yeah. i mean you were talking about identity a moment ago yeah well transfusion we think of transfusion today as sort of replacing a bit of lost fluid don't we really when it comes to it something that's been lost for a trauma of some kind well back then um it was a collision between two medical systems so the first one being the idea that the body is at least in part mechanical so, oh, excuse you. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, the, the body, at least in part mechanical. So, you know, you have the discovery of a circulatory system. So the, the blood circulates the body powered by a heart, which is like a pump. So that's early 17th century stuff. So early 1600s. So 1624, that theory was written up by William Harvey. Transfusion occurs when that theory collides with older ideas because we don't know in that era what the blood is what what's in the blood so people started to think well they thought to you know ancient greek and roman myths about 
you know, Jason and the Argonauts and, and the story of Medea was basically right. I, I, I was on NPR yesterday and I told the whole story of Jason and the Argonauts and it took about 15 minutes. And I saw, so I'm not going to start the whole story of Jason <laughs> and the Argonauts. But at the end, when Jason's got the Golden Fleece and mm. he's sort of returning home with his uh, with his men, mm -hmm. um, the whole city is out to celebrate apart from his father. And his father, because his father's very, very old, couldn't get out. Um, so when he claimed the fleece, he also claimed the, the um, king's daughter who helped him with his challenges by casting magic spells. And he said, well, can you cast another spell and maybe take some years off my life and give them to my father? And she said, no, I don't want to do that. Um, but what I will do is I will perform a ritual. And so she got the sort of wizened old man out of his hut um sort of placed him on a some kind of i don't know splint or i don't know where he's placed him on the ground anyway um and prepared a potion which she collected by flying around the world in a chariot uh, a magical yep. chariot she collected things like the beak of an old crow and and weird ingredients from around the the known and unknown uh, world she made a potion out of them and she slit his throat and the blood came you know out of the um the throat the, the hole the slit the slit and she mixed the blood with the potion and then put the blood back in some some versions say that he drank it others say it was straight back into the uh, cut that she made and then he started to transform and his hair started to return to a to black from grey and his wrinkles disappeared and for some early transfusionists back in the 1640s in britain in england in oxford actually um francis potter um he sort of combined these two ideas of the circulatory system and blood having some magical power and thought well if i transfuse some blood from a young animal into an old animal, then that old animal would become younger. And he tried it with with um, chickens and hens and you know cockerels, that kind of thing. Uh, it never made it work. Uh, <laughs> he couldn't get the blood across. But uh, I've sort of gone off 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 course a bit here because we were talking about identity. No, no, this is perfect. Because yeah. but it does come round to identity. I mean, there's a there's yeah. a lot of a story of blood transfusion. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's also the story. The same story also gives us the idea of intravenous feeding. You know, you you stick right. a. Uh, in fact, I've got. I've got one here, a, a porcupine quill. So that's what mm. was used. One of the things that transfusionists used to transfuse blood. It's a. Again, it's 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 kind of an articulation of that mechanical body. It's a mechanical equivalent right. of a blood vessel. You just snip the ends off and mm. hollow it out. Um, the first mechanical conduit to be used in a surgical procedure. Anyway, I'm going off on one again. <laughs> well, but, yeah. But well, no. Let me. So, oh, go on. Okay. No, I was I was going to I was going to say. So you have these three thread. You have these three threads, and they all weave in together. Yeah. Right. You have identity and you have ethics and the third one that really seems clear is that is the way that uh models played into and wove in between all of these so that as people's understanding changed it would they would it took uh almost like thomas kuhn talking about different scientific paradigms they needed different models and that helped people shift their identity well and so i think it's mm. so well when it comes to identity in relation to blood transfusion this is what i was going to say as well but it, it also relates to what sure. you were just saying there. Um, the idea of identity that people had is that you were an essence. You were inhabiting your body. And maybe you were inhabiting your blood. And if that's the case, a blood transfusion is, well, it's both very exciting and promising because maybe you can make um, someone younger. Uh, by transfusing right. some young soul um, or vital principle into their body, maybe you can make them um, sane if they're mad uh, by transfusing a calm lamb's blood into their body. 
Uh, so the idea of identity was very, it was very much um, at play um, in blood transfusions. But we do get, that transforms a little bit later when we get just in the 18th century, that completely transforms. I don't know if you want to talk about blood, uh, blah, blah. <laughs> sorry, I don't know if you want to talk about um, tooth transplants in particular, um, but they have a, it's a very distinct idea of identity, a more modern idea of, of an individual sort of tied up with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think one of the things I really appreciate about what you uh, even shared and, you know, if someone's like, the Jason, the Argonaut story is weird. Well, it's really important to understand that, like, you literally have, like, William Harvey explaining the circulatory system, and you have people taking that idea. And for us, we just transpose that. They're like, oh, they understood that, and we transpose it into a modern understanding. But that's not how scientific no. progress, even today, doesn't seem to yeah. work. It's, mm. it, it's, you're piercing in a very uh, singular ways, and then you have to wait for the rest of everything to catch up. So they, they figured out, like, the circulatory system, and then what they applied were Greek myths to it, and they applied Galen's humors to it, Absolutely. and they applied um, vitalism to it. And that was really eye-opening for me, mm. because when we read about, you know, I mean, the way at least it was taught to me in school is like, William Harvey discovered the circulatory system, and then we understood the body. And it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's like, that was huge. Mm. And it eventually helped create this mechanistic model, right, which mm. was very useful for advancing medicine. But this, uh, the, what, the things that they kept alongside it are just mind-boggling mm. to us because we, we can't understand the inconsistency, but they didn't know. And so that, that to me was very fascinating, that mm. whole idea. Have you heard of uh, a, a, an Irish healer called Valentin Greatrakes? I might be pronouncing no. it incorrectly, bear in mind, because I've only ever seen it written. <laughs> now, he's not, he's not in the book, so it's not, it's not it. something where, you, you know, you're not lacking in, in, uh, no. in any way. <laughs> no, you, no, you, no. you haven't read this in the book if you don't know, because <laughs> it's not in there. But basically, he, he, Valentin Greatrakes was... Um, he had a very unfortunate um, sort of moniker. He was called the Irish mm. Stroker. That is it's unfortunate, unfortunate, isn't it? Uh, but he was called the Irish Stroker because he 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 apparently cured all kinds of diseases by going up to people and sort of not stroking them, but sort of if you're on YouTube right now, you'll be able to see me make a fool of myself and sort of doing that and sort of massaging, well, not even touching them, but. Oh, he didn't even touch No, them. you know, sort of running your hands ar along the body. And there are, there are, there are, there are reports of people being healed in all, of all manner of things um, after being stroked hmm. by the Irish stroker. And some of the people who've put their names to sort of say, yes, you know, we are serious scientists, uh, Robert Boyle being one of them, uh, John um, Wilk, Wilkin, I, I, I always forget the name of John Wilkes or Wilkins because I know someone called James Wilkes or Wilkins, and I just mix them up. <laughs> I think it's Wilkins, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I do not. I do not remember. It's so, I think it's Wilkins. Yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah. So he 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 was he was also one of the members of a royal society, the royal society, to sort of say, yes, I've seen this happen. So they, you mm. know. They didn't necessarily what they considered what what they considered to be um, to pass as as knowledge and as legitimate wasn't necessarily what we'd consider uh, a scientist. Well, if the word scientist didn't exist to the, to the early nineteenth century, but a proto scientist, a virtuoso right, like uh, right. Robert Boyle, we wouldn't necessarily think he would be. Well, we would think of it maybe as being taken in by. Uh, someone like Valentin Greatrix is a faith healer, essentially. But if yeah. you trust just your your own senses, then you, I suppose, you can be taken in by that kind of thing, right? And uh, and the, it's definitely the idea that it's science moves as a community of peers, mm. right? So it's not just you, you 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 can't just fool one person and then it becomes part of science. Mm. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it does become part of science, and then it gets evaluated, and people are like. Uh, you know, I, I, who is the, oh man, there's a famous, um, 
gentleman who like went around and debunking faith healers and, oh, like, figure um, out different ways of like randy uh, the amazing randy yes yeah like and that that's always uh those are always fascinating like he's a very uh, funny man you know, too he, he just figured out mm. yes yeah so and that's that's always um and i think that's valuable work right mm. like uh a lot of times you know there's predatory things that go along with those kind of faith healing uh approaches absolutely um, certainly so uh but i did want to talk about too as we talk about ethics and this kind of goes with um the models and um identity and and the whole ethics of it is that in many cases you know we look almost uh and he, i wouldn't say you write them like this i, I don't that, I think that's fair but it's hard as a modern person not to see the guy who had like visions of angels uh showing him the terrible things that would happen with the transfusion of blood mm. and he comes out and he just starts fighting the other guy uh what he was afraid of would happen you know you look at him he's like oh he's the bad guy in the story because he's anti-science well yes and no because what we see mm. is because of issues with the system like when you talk about teeth the ethics of it that i mean that section was horrifying it is horrifying the idea yeah. of children selling their living teeth to uh to the ri to rich people so that their family can survive is um oh i, I don't it's have words for that. what's more heartbreaking of course is that things happen um many magnitudes worse than that nowadays uh, with kidneys right mm. Right, and that that comes out now. Of course, fortunately, as far as I understand, that's all technically black market. Mm. That's not well. So, uh, and I um, think it's, is... it's, I can't remember if it's Iraq or Iran. Um, one of the I think it's yes, Iran. Uh, it, Sorry, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. it was a while ago since I wrote that. Um, so it's I think it was Iran. Um, that, that you you can sell your organs in uh, one country of the world, and it's Iraq or Iran. I believe it's Iran. Yeah, yeah though that, that part, you know, and the not people not understanding the cost of mm. giving up an organ and just seeing it as an easy way out. Um, that, you know, every time that there is progress in science, it, this even happened with, you know, chemical, you know, you can look at it from a, a warfare standpoint with chemical warfare and then nuclear warfare. We make this incredible scientific progress and then it gets put into a system that already has issues. Right, we already have problems in this this kind of situation, and then it just all like the system's already creaking, and then it just creates this horrific mm -hmm. moment, right? Like the Cold War. Um, fortunately, with chemical warfare, you have World War One, and then for the most part, I know it's still been used, but it's it's normally at least hidden, and it's not like this full scale use of chemical warfare because countries of the world said this is terrible, right? And uh, and that's in some ways a, a good story, um, not a exciting story. It's still a little depressing. But <laughs> as we look at this sort of things, right? It's like uh, that was that was really fascinating to me. Can you talk to that idea of um, the challenge to ethics every time uh, you know we have a new model or we have a new technique? What I don't know what you mean. Um... So every time there is some kind of scientific mm. progress, it does seem to pose, and this comes up a lot in your book, a lot of ethical Oh, I see. Questions. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, and, and oftentimes it just exacerbates ethical problems that are already present in our Well, uh, yeah, systems. I think that's the, that's the key, really. I mean, the, 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 the massive change and where the ethical problems we've just been discussing with um, uh, the black market in organs... Uh, for instance, and mm. the tooth transplants, where that comes from is, well, it's, 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 it's a part of a fabric of modern society and that, that emerged in the 18th century. So it emerged with a new idea. And we're back to identity again, actually. Right. So right. before this point, you know, you have this idea of an identity. We've talked about that, actually. The idea of, of you sort of being um, a soul um that sounded a bit wrong didn't it ass oh ass. <laughs> no. 
I didn't even catch it. <laughs> I just I heard myself I heard myself say say it, and <laughs> I didn't say that, did I? Um, a soul, the vitalist tradition. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes, <laughs> yes. So you had this idea where you you were you inhabited a body. Well, in the 18th century, that doesn't make any sense anymore, and so much changes. Um, Fairly mm. in fairly short order, actually. Of course, it's always gradual in history. It's never you never have a, a quick change, really. But you know, in fairly short order, you have shopping uh, becoming a thing. You have fashion becoming a thing. You had uh, pantomimes, <laughs> uh, Christmas trees, uh, coffee shops. Mm. You had um, industry. The industrial revolution, sort of the first parts of that, starting to sort of bubble away. Um, and with that, you had a widening class system. Mm -hmm. And along with all that, and sort of part of all those social transformations, you have this new idea of identity. So you, people, this is, I'm speaking in general terms when I'm, you can't really speak in general terms, but for the sake of um, brevity, <laughs> I'll go with, I'll yeah, go with a yeah. word people and speak generally. Uh, people started to, um, well, stopped thinking of themselves necessarily as a soul that's inhabiting a body. They started to think of themselves as the body. So they identified themselves with the things that they bought, the things they owned, um, the things um, they, the people they hung around with, the people who, the, pe the things people did to them. You know, all these external mm. forces coming to sort of make up who you are, this self, this individual in this modern understanding of that term. And that really comes from the 18th century. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's both a product of those social changes and I suppose, a, um, I want to say a symptom of them. Um, a driving force of that as well? Well, it's part of the social change as well as being a product of it, I suppose yes. you could say. Yeah, yeah. There's that back mm. and forth play between like they would discover this about the body and then that would play back into the social changes mm. that would tell them more about the body and back and but forth. But where, where it all comes into sort of focus is a new science that emerged at that time. Um, and that's the science of dentistry. Right. So the term dentist or dentiste, uh, it was invented in France uh, by a fellow called Pierre Fauchard. And he basically invented dentistry in response to, um, or, uh, well, partially in response to uh, this growing concern over appearance and preserving a natural beauty. So previously, mm. even the king would have had their teeth removed and maybe cleaned with a rag, you know, very basic care, just aimed at removing pain, really. Uh, so Louis XIV right. was toothless quite early on in his life because he, he was also quite a glutton. Um, but, um, you know, yeah. dentistry. It's hard when you're the king and no one can tell you can tell you no, right? That's <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, in fact, he, he um, I don't know if I, I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but there are stories of him telling um, his operator for the teeth, not dentist, his operator for the teeth, to just treat him like a peasant. He doesn't care what, what happens just as long as this damn tooth is removed. And he ends up removing part yeah. of his jaw. And then for the rest of his life, oh. he sort of whistled funnily when he spoke. <laughs> um, which, uh, which, I mean, it is and, is and isn't funny. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, it is one of those things like, it, yes, so I understand. Um, yeah. Um, but when, when you have in the, so it's 1728, you have the term dentist coming about and Pierre Fauchard sort of set himself up in, in opposition to this sort of rural backward looking, or as he, as he painted it, um, idea of just removing teeth. And basically he introduced things like fillings, filing your teeth, cleaning them, uh, washing your mouth out with urine something that we don't do um, so much now and transplanting teeth as well. So much. So, well, I, <laughs> I think we run in different social circles. <laughs> I dare say we do, but um, I wasn't referring to my own social circle. Well, I suppose there is, there is Richard. Um, anyway, no. 
No, for transplantation, oh. transplanting teeth was, was no, one I, of those. Yes. Um, uh, 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 one of those items on his menu of treatments, and that was, you know, it was, it was a a a, a measure that was meant to retain your beauty. It was also part of a commercialization. Um, you know, all these other revolutions and changes we talked about a moment ago. It was part of. It was part of that. Uh, but it really thrived on this widening class system, this widening inequality between rich and poor. Very similar to uh, the section on noses and how literally you could not be an emperor without a nose, right? Um, well, yeah. and how important that was to the aesthetic side of it was. Well, you, you couldn't be until Justinian II was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, it was considered a barrier and he was like, you know what? I don't care. Um, but that's why it was considered very, like, I mean, even the idea that it was a mar on your masculinity mm. was fascinating to me because it was you're either um, of low moral character, which is interesting to me that when you look at uh, the description of the Syphilitic nose, if I can put it that way, it was a subtle nose. nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you often see that. Uh, I wonder if that's why that shows up in like Disney villains and stuff. Mm. Like if you think about like Voldemort, and if you think about um, the Horned King and the Black Cauldron, I don't know if that's a to represent a skull or if that's uh, a trace that's back to the idea of low moral character. But well, anyways, no, well, that was, well, I, that was I have, a, I have a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Lindsay Fitzharris, is just released her new book, The Facemaker. And she, this is a point she talks about. Because The Facemaker is, is, about, um, is about the horrific injuries sustained in the First World War. Mm. Um, and the efforts of a surgeon, Harold Gillies, to, to re, um, recast those faces, so to speak, and provide some kind of um, uh, surgical solution to what was then thought of as, as facial disfigurement, but you wouldn't really think of it now you'd uh, like that. You'd say, um, I've forgotten what the term, facial difference or something. But anyway, um, mm. she, she talks about, um, you know, how there's one character, and I've forgotten which one it is, one character who is good until he had a facial injury, and then he becomes evil. That seems like a, you can have a competition. Which one was it? Right in. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there is there is that yeah. that association between facial disfigurement and evilness, yeah, uh, which Phantom is a very opera, unfortunate, right? Yeah, absolutely, Phantom it's, of the Opera. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very unfortunate. Yeah. And but we and that's like uh, you know that's where like oh you can't trust this guy to be emperor until you know he shows up with and forces it militarily. But then you also have. Um, uh, that's the whole thing with the teeth, right? Like they start to realize, you know, oh, everyone should have good-looking teeth, uh, and that becomes that becomes an issue. Well, not um, everyone. That's a problem, isn't it? Not everyone should have good-looking teeth. But if you if you want to get ahead and and you can afford to get ahead, then you right, should right, right. be able to. You should have the financial. You should have the freedom to spend your money in that way. And um, yes. just ruin and, and, someone else's <laughs> mouth for your own game. Right, right. And that's to say nothing yes, about the fact it didn't really that. work very well. Right. <laughs> like, uh, not very often. Well, it, yes. it's, it's, some of uh, them yeah. lasted, you know, reputedly. Some, you can never be sure, can you? Because, because doctors, surgeons, dentists, they it's will lie. It's all marketing. Um. But some of some reports have said they'd lasted five years, some have lasted mm. months, and you know considered successes. Some of them were from living children. Some of them, some of the, the donor teeth, so to speak, because they weren't really donated, were they? Um, some of those teeth mm. were from battlefields, from uh, collected yep. by the barrel load from the Peninsula War, from Waterloo, and you're sort of going to the dentist uh, and for the hanging. And from Hang, yep, Goya, yeah, Goya, Goya, uh, hanged, Goya painted uh, a scene. Yes, uh, of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. the uh, the executed criminal, and they're yes. taking the. Oh yeah, that was. Yeah, fair warning to to our listeners. If you do read the book, it is quite gruesome, and not that you know it is transplant surgeries, but it is like uh, 
If you like uh, true crime, you might enjoy <laughs> some of these. Can I just here. say, listeners, uh, <laughs> as well, uh, that it, it's yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I. I try to be vivid in my descriptions but i don't actually go in for gore i'm not that kind of person it's that was very I, <laughs> clear yes um i i, I no, believe well, it's for it, writer's it, it, responsibility to make the scene before you present yeah and if it's uncomfortable that's because the practices were damned uncomfortable and that was exactly my point. So if I if I misspoke there, my no apologies. no no need to I, apologize. I, I just wanted it was to... <laughs> very vivid. It was. It did not feel. It did not feel like you were like you know. Uh, you did not come across as like the Stephen King of medical history. You know, the... <laughs> I've been called the Bill Bryson of but... medical history, which is very nice. Oh, there you. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, it was an Amazon review, not an actual critic, but uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but still, but yeah. Still. Yeah, I mean, you take what you can Absolutely. get. Absolutely. No, um, <laughs> so, uh, one thing that I definitely want to cover as well is this idea of uh, one because you have the uh, amazing book with you, but uh, the surgeon and and their, the surgeons and their ego, where you have surgeons competing to be first, and uh, you know that's where I brought up Willem Kolf and. His work, which seemed to be very charitable and very generous, he, it seems he generally did it for the right reason. And then you have these other surgeons, you know, uh, they become celebrities. They uh, are renowned for their infidelity as they're uh, going mm. on tour to talk about how they've done the first heart transplant that only lasted for a little bit. Um, can you talk to, can you speak a little bit to that of how the egos of, of surgeons have played into kind of mm. this new era of organ transplants. It's really, it's really, again, it's really difficult to, to know how to pitch this because in a lot of the, a lot of the things you read from the 1950s onwards, so mainly around kidneys, um, hearts, livers and pancreas. I don't cover livers and pancreas in, in my book. I, um, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd start to, I don't know. I felt that would sort of, it would go on too long if I did that. And it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say anything particularly new about those things. Uh, but when you're dealing with organ transplants, you do tend to have this narrative of some arsehole surgeon mm. really leaning into their, them being an arsehole. <laughs> and yeah, I, and just being so difficult to work with, such a nasty character, um, so inflexible, and just arrogant. They know best, they're sort of the hero uh, of their own story, and everybody else needs to understand that and work around it. Um, now, I have met quite a few surgeons from that period, actually. Uh, some of them have well, most of them have died now. I know, I know one who's still alive, who's uh, incredible, is an incredible person. In fact, I've, I've, every surgeon I've spoken to from that period, I've found to be uniformly lovely, to be quite honest. Huh. Um, and yeah. I've been reflected on this because I never met Christian Bernard. Um, he died well before I developed any interest in transplant surgery. Um, and he, I know people who've worked with him and he apparently was a tyrant. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but those yeah. who I have met have been absolutely lovely. And I think sort of reflecting on the story that we get told about transplant surgery usually, mm. we usually just have this, this sort of narrative, even from a patient perspective where you're, which I can, obviously can't speak to because I've never been, uh, I've never been a transplant patient as I said at the beginning. Um. So it's either a memoir of a patient's perspective or it's some kind of history told by usually one of these surgeons or, or someone who's sort of bigging them up in a way. And I learnt fairly recently that in the 1960s, that's when hospitals and, and surgeons and doctors started to really get wise to PR. The importance of telling right. their own story and of crafting a narrative around themselves. And that 
marries up with the fact that um, in that period, you know, post Second World War, it's a period that you know we've just gone through a terrible um, time in world history. Um, but that period is a period of optimism, and people want to believe that there are heroes out there. They want to believe that men particularly um can make miracles happen so part of me thinks that these people who come across as ourselves are not ourselves at all they're just trying to sort of build their character as society demands it to be built i mean one just an example of of one character who i've met john wickham now he wasn't i don't think he was particularly active in transplant surgery but he was an extremely fame well he wasn't even really famous but he was extremely important he was one of the mm. people who introduced laparoscopic surgery keyhole surgery into general surgery mm. so before it was for only specialist use but john wickham introduced it um into general use uh, in collaboration with radiographers and with instrument makers and I interviewed John about this, this, I suppose, lifetime of achievement that he had. By the way, I was born prematurely and without his work, I wouldn't be alive. And I said to him, I said, John, how would you like to be remembered? And he said, oh, I don't know. Maybe I've saved one or two people a little bit of bother. <laughs> He was, said, he was, said, but he said that genuinely. You know, it was. You know, I've just said yeah. few people bother. So I, I thought, oh, that's lovely. Um, yeah, and I, I, I did mention a surgeon earlier as well, who, whose book I showed you. Yeah, who did doesn't really do a good job of presenting himself. Um, I won't mention who that is actually because he's still alive. That's fair. But I can say he looks like a poor man's Columbo. Yes, yes, we did. We we came to agree uh, on that, and, didn't we? Yes, we did. And uh, so I will not mention because then people would, of course, look up the book, and I don't want to cause any Twitter beef for you. But uh, the book title is very uh, self-aggrandizing. How do you say that? Self-aggrandizing. Um, yeah. Self-aggrandized. Yeah, like very much like uh, the. The even, and I think this is where, you know, he, uh, this person might be lovely in person, but when you tout these sort of titles for yourself, these sort of uh, amazing achievements, and not, you don't let other people do it, you do come across as an asshole. That's that is right. just, well, that is the way. <laughs> a, a lifetime of achievement in transplant surgery or any other field for that matter is something to be demonstrated, yeah. not stated. That's uh, that's a lesson that uh, <laughs> that we could all um, <laughs> sometimes do with learning. Right. Yeah. Yes. Let it, let another man praise you. Yes. And, and not your your own mouth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It. I mean, that's just. Uh, but you know, you you mentioned this, and um, I wonder, and I don't even begin to understand the industry in this respect. But you talked about they became wise to PR, mm. and this is how they got donors and. Um, and so uh, you wonder how much of this is driven by the fact that they want to pull in, uh, donations. They want to, you know, if you can, um, to, uh, not the, not the person we were just previously talking about, but, uh, someone from your book to when they call him golden hands, right? He's the man with the golden hands. Bernard, like, Christine that's Bernard. a, that's yeah. a great selling. Yes. That's a great selling but point when you're looking it, for donations, it, it, right? Well, I suppose that speaks to the PR point, doesn't it? He did, Bernard didn't come up with the term golden hands for himself. His right, patient right, right. did. But it says a lot that wow. um, everybody seems to have run with it, doesn't it? Yes, yes. It's a great headline. It's, you know, and uh, so that part was, was really fascinating to me. Um, I want to be, um, you know, aware of your time and I want to be respectful of that. Uh, as we kind of start to wrap up here, um, can you give kind of uh, the story of medicine through the history of transplant surgery? For you, one of the central questions was definitely identity. Yes. And so even the questions of ethics and the questions of models. Well, let me... Uh, mm. We're all kind of subservient to that. And so talk to us about what 
that main idea of identity is, that main thread throughout the book? Well, first of all, let me, I'll show you the, this is the British, um, the, the original cover. Ah. Notice the subtitle. A surprising yes, history of which transplant. is also, I didn't mean for that to go on there. It was supposed to be an unexpected history of transplants. Um, but oh. um, <laughs> the editorial assistant at the time um, wrote down the wrong thing and I maybe didn't correct it. Anyway, it's, it's beside, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, the point in showing you that is to say that the, the subtitle, which I can never remember of the American edition, the story of medicine through the history of transplant surgery. That was also sort of given to me in a sense, because I could never defend that because it doesn't go through the whole history of medicine. The history of medicine is bloody massive. No, <laughs> so I could never, you know, yes. I can never as, as a historian, I can't stand by that subtitle. Um, but the thread, th the thread throughout the book was initially, it was, in fact, it was initially a, 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 a collection of metaphors by which we understand our bodies and our relationships with our bodies. As, as a, and it was a kind of meditation on what it means to be. Mm. So we had, um, we started off with the agricultural metaphor. So we talked right. a, a little bit at the beginning about this, about how, I don't think I mentioned this in particular, but transplant surgery at the beginning was a, a direct transposition of a horticultural technique. So it's a technique come right. straight from farming. So clearly the case that the person who transcribed it, Leonardo Fioravanti, who, by the way, stole it from a secretive Italian right. family, um, he called it the farming of men, transplant surgery. And, and the... the um, uh, the farming of men and the cultivation of the agriculture of the body. That was it. And then later it got right. and so, called the cultivation of the body as well. The exact model, like they just, they, they saw what they did with bark mm. and they just completely took that method and applied it to human well, skin. Well, here, in fact, just opened up naturally to it. For people on YouTube, yes. you can see that's the meth. That's an 18th century um, uh, illustration, but it's, it's the... You know, you can attach one being to another and those two beings can feed a third. So it's just that technique applied to humans. And that's all a skin yeah. graft is. And that's sort of, a, you know, the, the, that is what the first transplant is. So it's an agricultural frame we work in. Also, a cultural, culturally, um, it's culturally to do with the land of the trees. It was not, it was not part, emphatically not part of, of, um, legitimate medicine at the time. So we move from that agricultural understanding of a body to a, a, a kind of a mechanical one. Uh, when we talk about, we talked about blood transfusions and this, um, this investment in the idea that the blood circulate, blood circulates the body is pumped around by a, a beating heart, a muscle, a pump, a mechanism. So you have this mechanical frame coming in. Going to the 18th century, that's joined by an economic idea. So you have this, this notion of body parts. We've not talked about this, actually, but you, you have, basically you have a notion of body parts that can um, be cut off from a source of life or um, given life. So if you transplant an arm, not an arm, that never happened in that period. If you transplant a tooth, say, because we talked about that, right. into someone's tooth into someone else's body, then what scientists or proto-scientists thought happened in, in that period was that a, an, an invisible life, a living principle, a vital principle, made its way into that dead part and it brought it to life again. And that really works on an economic, it's an economic metaphor. If you, if you cut off a village from a source of income, a source of finance, it withers and dies, but you can introduce finance again and it will revive. So you have this economic metaphor coming in there, which, which of course resonates with 
the vast changes that are happening in society at that point, the Industrial Revolution, right, those right. massive differences, gaps between rich and poor, the shopping, blah, 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 all that stuff. When you get to the 20th century, I'm going to skip the 19th century because not... No, I'll, I'll actually, no, I'll, I will say something about the 19th century because at the 19th century, science in general changes. The word scientist is coined for one in, in 1834. Right. Um, and throughout that century, so many massive changes, anesthesia, for instance, virology, uh, bacteriology, x-rays, things that we just can't imagine being without today. They came along in the 19th century. And by the end of the 19th century, um, transplant surgery, blood transfusion seemed barbaric. It's ancient barbaric mm. stuff that, um, people's great, 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 great grandfathers practiced. Which is weird because we think of it as a hyper-modern thing, don't we? Yeah. Usually. Yeah, but yeah, really, yeah. It's, it's got such a long history. Um, but by the end of the 19th century, a couple of things happen that I won't talk about in detail because I know we're running short on time. But basically, you have the, um, the idea of blood types. The idea of one body being chemically compatible with another. And that's uh, an invention of immunology. So that's another one of those sciences to right. come from the 19th century. So you have that and you have new techniques for um, operating, for sewing blood vessels together. So a technique called vascular anastomosis. And in my book, I make the argument, and in fact, in, in peer-reviewed research that you can access um, through university libraries and whatnot, I make the argument that um, organ transplant surgery at least partially emerged from 19th century French embroidery. Yes, I remember you saying that, and that you know that even plays into what you've been we've been talking about with the egos of surgeons. That this woman's incredible contribution mm. to something that is essential to transplanting is just kind of veiled over, papered over, so that the surgeon can receive the credit. Well, part, that's sort of fair, sort of not fair, I don't suppose. I don't want to stick up for a, for a eugenicist <laughs> or a Nazi or a suspected Nazi, but you, partly that's the case. I don't think he would have acknowledged a professional debt to a woman because he um, thought they right. were inferior. Um, but also the kind Was of the contribution woman she a made. Eugenicist? No, no, no. She was, she was, no, Corella, Lexi oh. Corella, the person who- So we can who, stick up for her. Yeah, oh, we can stick yeah. up for her. <laughs> Obviously, that's, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't want to stick up for saying. the- no, I was saying. <laughs> right, right, right. But, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> I forgot what I was saying now. Um, yeah, she, uh, he wouldn't have acknowledged a professional debt to her, so that's true. But right. by the same token, the kind of- hmm. Uh, change that she made to sight of the kind of contribution she made to science and to transplant surgery would not have been recognized in, t in the terms of the science of the day. In fact, only now are historians recognizing right. that to know something involves the body. It you make things. I mean, in Columbia yes. University, you have Pamela, Pamela H. Smith working on this very idea that to make something is to know something. So this connection mm. between the body and the brain, which is, it's not controversial to say there is a connection between the body and the brain, and they're actually the same <laughs> thing. Uh, but, it's, but the way that scientists have, and in fact, in, as scholars in general, have treated their subjects, you would think that if you did something with your body, it was completely nothing to do with any contribution to knowledge um if that makes right. sense but back to the metaphors that yes. in the it, because of this concern with materiality you could say in the early 20th century you then have a, a a new metaphor emerging and that's the metaphor of the fabric body now historians treating transplant surgery before this book have just sort of gone with this idea of a body of being a machine. That's a, a, a few centuries earlier, but they think it sort of continues and maybe gets um, 
more pronounced when you start comparing um, bodies to aeroplanes and computers and things. But actually, the big change at the start of the 20th century, and it's down to the embroidery engagement, uh, the big change is that you start to get surgeons really developing their fine skills, fine motor skills, right. fine uh, skills, so manipulating the material of a body. And that material understanding of a body is very difficult to put into words. Um, but that's the great change that occurs. And that's what enables um, organs to be transplanted. It's that really serious and intense concern with uh, the craft of surgery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's very evident uh, in your book as, as they kind of go through it, because there's that, you know, yet another thing that you develop throughout is early on the med the doctors were men who would never actually put hands on someone. Mm. That was something that barbers did who were unskilled labor. Well, skills. Semi-skilled yeah. labor. Yes. But like it, it was a it was a lowly yes. occupation. It was it you you like I believe one of the phrases it was either lie like a uh, a dentist or you lied like a barber. These idea that <laughs> yeah, the yeah. men Yes. Like yeah, a tooth I can't remember what it was. It, but was, it, was, neither. it was a tooth puller. Lie like a tooth puller. That's what, and it was like literally like, oh, these guys get their hands dirty. You can't trust them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Know, listen to the men of science who never actually get their hands dirty. And so that movement um, is one. I'm much happier having someone who understands the science actually operating. On the thing is, people, right? people have always been more, more happy to have someone who who has who has experience with bodies operating on them when surgeons right. when 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 physicians had you know this this sort of dedication to galen and would wouldn't touch you excuse me wouldn't touch you then a lot of the peasantry would sort of they wouldn't really stand for that I, and probably and i would, would say wisely expensive so as well um, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so kind of as, uh, as we finish here, what is, if you could leave our audience with one thing besides obviously buy and read the book, which is, uh, just a really enjoyable read. Um, what would you leave, uh, our listeners with? What is like the one lesson you'd want to leave them with or the one maybe call to action? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, the thing that came up in my mind initially was um, become an organ donor. <laughs> I suppose that would yeah. be my call to action. Yeah. Um, well, a, a more a more sort of well, a less direct call to actual action <laughs> would be a call to think, um, really, or to to mm. to. to that sounds really patronizing. I don't mean it to be patronizing. I mean, uh, I mean, the book really is about when it comes down to it. It's about think. It's about meditating on what it means to be, which is something I said earlier. So I suppose it's it's for, for two sort of life lessons. One is try to taste life as much as possible, hmm. and two is don't be an arsehole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, I don't say words. To yes, live I by. don't say that so much in the book, but I think it, it comes down. <laughs> you know, this concern with transplant surgery as a culturally and socially important thing, and a way to mm. think about what it means to live and what it means to have an identity. I think that the lessons you can take from thinking like that, from from being sensitive to. I suppose the um, complexity and the beauty um, and the troubling aspects as well of life, it does come down to don't be an arsehole and enjoy yourself. <laughs> it's later than you think. Well, and I, I love that. I, in some ways, it's almost a history of, of human dignity or or the indignities we often visit on others, mm. right? And so this idea, like as as you're talking here, of a black market where we just steal things from people. Like, I mean, you, th those stories were horrific. Like a lot of this is constantly preying on people and you clearly represent 
um, a lot of principles that we take for granted in our current science were like, oh, I can't believe they did that, were seen as commonplace and acceptable a couple centuries ago, which really isn't that long. No. Like, even as like we were looking at it, like you're talking about the 1950s and 60s where these principles are really articulated about what is okay to do in transplant surgery. And so uh, it, I, I love that you said to just meditate on that and allow that to sink more in, like into our ethical mm. consciousness because, man, it, 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 we cannot lose this, right? Like it's only just taken root and we cannot lose this idea that like we, we can't just do this to other people. And it's very clear that like people did. And so I, Again, thank you for your uh, thank you for your work. Really enjoyed uh, reading it, and uh, it's been a pleasure having. Thanks you on. so much, PJ. It's 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 been a pleasure being on. 